Psalm 121 reads, A song of ascent. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. Yahweh will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. Yahweh will guard your, your going out and, and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Dear God, thank you for being our keeper. We lift up our eyes to you knowing that our help can only come from you. Lord, we know that you are the creator of all things. You've made heaven and earth. All that we have and all that we are is because you've placed us in this situation and give us life and the world to live in. And we trust that you are in control over every little thing. Lord, we know you will not slumber, nor will you sleep. You are our keeper and you protect us. Um, we know that no matter day or night, in every circumstance, in any time, you're always watching over those that belong to you. We know that you will protect us from all evil and that you'll keep us. Lord, we pray that we continue to trust in you, that um, we know that you will guard us no matter where we go from now until we see you in forever, Lord. Thank you for the time in your word. May we be convicted and moved by it so we can conform our lives to the image of your son. In your son's precious name, amen. Contrary to secularists or evolutionists, everyone actually operates off of faith. You know, scientists say, well, no, we operate off of facts. We don't operate off of faith. We have all of these evidence that prove why we do or believe what we do. But we know that's not completely true. Even the most hardcore atheist operates off a level of faith. What people know will, ne will inevitably become what they find their security in, even if that security is not 100%. And for the Christian, we have security because God is our keeper. It matters in your daily life where you place your security. Where you find your security actually reveals to you where you place your faith in. That means for the Christian, the, most secure, the more secure you are in the word of God, the more secure you are in God, the more faith you have in him. This isn't a blind faith just out of our subjective emotions, <laughs> but it is a faith that is drawn from the pages of scripture. The Bible is a, is a book that chronicles all of God's actions and is a testimony of his faithfulness and how he protects his people and how everything came into being because God has set it into place. The Bible is the living word of God and it transcends the pages of scripture and impacts the life of those that believe in the scriptures. It's not just something that's just like any other book. It's not just a book that you just put on your shelf, but when you read it, 
it actually changes you. And the more you know of God, the more you understand this God that's revealed in the scripture, it will morph the way that you think and it will protect the way that you, uh, your outlook in life. It will just, uh, it will change you completely from the, the deepest part of you all the way out into what you do in your everyday life. And this passage here is designed by God to help us think more about God. The psalm here reminds us that God is our protector and our keeper, and we should not worry so much about the things of this world. We should not worry about the dangers that are in our life. This world is fallen and full of threats that may uh, be fatal to some of us, but our, our God is always faithful. Our God is always faithful no matter what happens to us in this life. In light of how difficult life may be, we are called to be obedient to him, to trust in him, and know that the Lord is our keeper. Just by starting off, look at the beginning of verse 1. Before that, there's this little phrase, a song of ascent. A song of ascent, it should be familiar to us by now because we've preached through, and you know, as we're going through the psalm series, we've preached through it differently, and some of them have touched these songs of ascent. And the song of ascent, again, it's, it's a song that people would sing, the Israelites would sing as a journey to the promised land, as a journey to Jerusalem to, to worship God for whatever reason. It could be uh, offering a sacrifice or it could be some sort of festival that they're celebrating. It's a journey that they have to go on. And as they go on this journey, they are singing these psalms. This, they're singing these psalms to remind themselves of the goodness of God. This particular psalm is designed to speak about the protection during their journey as they go and, and worship and, and give their offerings to Yahweh. Again, back then, it's, don't think of it as nowadays, we just get in our cars and go to church. Back then, it could, for some of them, is it could be like a week-long journey. They go from point A to point B, and it can be a very dangerous trip. But out of their devotion to Yahweh, out of their love for the Lord, they are willing to make this trek to the promised land and offer their and worship to the Lord because they understand that worshiping God is a priority in their life. This psalm, by different commentaries, categorized as a, a, a thanksgiving psalm. And thanksgiving psalms or songs are designed to assure the listener as well as the singer that God is going to, be pre is going, is going to protect them and that God is good. In this case, they're thankful to Yahweh for his protection throughout this journey. And this is a journey there and journey back. How do I know this? Well, you'll notice that the word guard shows up throughout this entire chapter. In verse 5, the word keeper and shade. In verse 6, uh, protect and keep. In verse 8, guard. All of these different words are synonymous. It's this idea that God will protect those who seek to worship him. Now look at verse 1. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? The psalmist or pilgrim woman use those two terms interchangeably because the psalmist here is writing a song about their pilgrim. So if I use pilgrim and psalmist, it's the same. Uh, this, this psalmist here, or this person that's pil uh, this, yeah, the psalmist here begins by saying that he will be lifting up his eyes towards the mountain. And again, if you're imagining as yourself as this, as this psalmist here, as they're going on this journey, one of your concerns might be that all, that all, all the dangers that come with this journey journey to the holy city for some may be 
a long, slippery path. Some go through deep valleys and others just the dangers of wildlife. And not only that, they are going on the journey to offer sacrifices and, and treasures, so they have things that basically will make them a vulnerable target, not only because of the supplies that they have, but all the things that they want to give to the Lord as a thanksgiving offering. This makes them attractive to robbers and thieves. This is not an easy trip, and it requir requires a tremendous amount of trust in the Lord in order to complete this journey there and back. Again, you can imagine this journey is filled with concerns and requires them to depend on something that is beyond themselves. You'll notice that he, said, he looks at the mountain. Why mountains? Jerusalem was on top of a mountain, and he, and he knows that where the temple of God is, that's where God is. Now, we know that God is not bounded by the actual building, but it's supposed to be this symbolic gesture that they're looking to God, that their affections are towards him, and they want to go towards the thing that they love the most. They're fixated on the location of where God is. He wants to be with God and knows that God will see them through. And he asks this question from, where shall my help come? The psalmist is asking a question that has a very obvious answer. And that is from the Lord. So where else, can, where else can people find hope? Where can I turn to in the time of great need? We turn to the Lord. It's a very obvious answer to us as Christians. Where the psalms looks to his journey is that he looks to the Lord. He's going on a place to worship God, and his protection is actually looking to God himself. He doesn't look to anyone else. Now think about this. What about you? In this time of COVID-19 and a whole bunch of civil unrest and crimes against particular ethnicities, there's all this reason to not want to worship together because you feel this, this, all these threats from without. And as we navigate through the, the, these tricky situations, where do you look to for help and security? Although it's true that for us in New Testament, we worship God wherever we go. Nonetheless, there is still a priority for the Christian to worship together, to meet together, to gather together as a body of Christ, to speak the truth to one another as a means of grace to sharpen us and to change us to be more like his son. The place of worship is important to the Christian, not because of the actual building, but rather with the people that we engage with in our lives. Verse 2, my help comes from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. The psalmist has confidence in God's protection and help. He knows that it is only found in one place, that is the Lord. <clears throat> the psalmist who is on this pilgrim answers the question that he knows that he only gets help from God. He knows that there's no one in all of creation that can offer him this type of safety and protection. The psalmist says that he, God is who made the heaven and earth. Remember, in the context of these pilgrims, these pilgrimers, they are walking through mountains and deserts and crazy situations. And all of them, all the terrain, all the land that they're walking on is made by God. The psalmist is saying that the Lord created everything and that God knows where they're going and God knows how to con even control even the elements as they go. If God, knows how to con if God knows how many numbers of grain of sand there are, he's going to make sure that people are able to walk through the sands to get to where he wants them to go. If God can direct every raindrop, he knows how to control the weather so that the people can make it to Jerusalem. If God can direct everything for the sake of worshiping him, he can direct us as well. The psalmist 
were faithfully obeying the Lord and trusting in his sovereign hand as they move towards Jerusalem to worship him, they have complete confidence that he will be able to, they will be able to overcome anything because God is watching over them. Do you believe that everything in this world is under the control of God? This isn't a call for us to be reckless, but it is a call for us to have confidence that wherever we go in this life, that we know that God is in absolute control. He's a maker of heaven and earth and everything in between. He is in control. So that means that if some of you get COVID, no matter what, how many masks you wear, how many times you wash your hands or whatever the case, if you're destined to get it, you will get it. Now, again, this is not a call to be reckless. It's just, it's just a reality of living in the fallen world that God is sovereign over every single molecule. And some of you and some of us here need to trade in that fear for increased faith because God is the one who made the heavens and the earth. God knows what COVID is, even when people do not understand it. God knows how it works. God knows who will get it, even if scientists and whoever um, can't figure it out. God already knows all of these little things. God doesn't need to do any research. God is in control, even if the world seems completely out of control. Verse 3, he will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. God will never allow his people to slip. This isn't merely about a person physically tripping. This means that a person's under the care of God, who if they are under, care, under God's care, they will not stumble. They will not be tripped up as long as they're being kept by God. Thinking again in the context of the people that are going on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, there aren't any roads the way that we have. It is not paved with like perfectly nice concrete and signs pointing this way and that way. There's no GPS, they're going on probably very rocky roads, roads that are uneven, but yet God will still keep them from slipping. And I think this is really amusing that he says that he will not allow your foot to slumber because he who keeps you will not slumber. Who keep, he, he will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. The Psalms understand that even on this journey, when they, they, they'll probably take days and days, and then at some point they'll actually need to rest. They'll probably need to pitch a tent and then make some fires, cook some s'mores or whatever. And at some point, they're going to have to sleep. But they know that even though they are sleeping, God is not some traveling companion that's like, oh, you guys are sleeping too? Is there room in the tent? Do you have a little sleeping bag for me too? No, God is not like that. God does not need to rest. God doesn't lose power. Rather, as the people are resting, God does not slumber. God doesn't need to rest. God is still watching over you even when you are asleep. When you are at your most vulnerable, God is still watching over you. This is an attribute of God that as we know is God is omnipotent. He doesn't rest the way that we need to rest. And, you, and look at this part, verse 3, it reads that he will not slumber. This is anthropomorphic language. God does not need to rest the way that we need to rest. There's a finiteness in human in all creatures. There's no animal or people or whatever that needs that, that can operate for 24 hours or nonstop. At some point, they will need to rest, but not God. God doesn't need to rest in order to make sure that you are kept. What does it mean that God does not slumber? Why is it so important that God does not slumber? This word slumber is this idea of just dozing off. That God doesn't just fall asleep because of fatigue. He doesn't get tired. And some of you guys understand what that is. You're in class, you're just kind of nodding off. That's his idea here. In fact, in, back in, uh, 
the Civil War and even World War I and II, if you were caught sleeping in your posts, uh, you're tried, and, and the punishment for that is death. You know, when, when soldiers fall asleep, they, they fail to do what they're supposed to do because they doze off and they eventually go to sleep. God is not like that. God doesn't become fatigued. When it comes to our spiritual warfare, even our physical need, our God will protect us and keep us because he doesn't slumber. God doesn't get worn out or he doesn't get burnt out as he's watching over us. God is not bored as he watches over us. There's not a moment in time that he needs to rest. His watchful eye will never get heavy. God will never nod off. God will never get tired of watching over us. God doesn't need coffee or Starbucks to keep himself up. He doesn't need to sleep. Verse 4, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, this sounds redundant here, and this is an acknowledgment that God is, is never uh, inattentive. The psalmist said, behold, or indeed, God is not like the pagan gods that need to rest or actually need something in order to get them to wake up, while the other gods may need something to conjure them, conjure their help uh, or for assistance. God himself is self-sufficient. God does not need to rest. And why would the psalmist say that God will neither slumber nor sleep? The word sleep here in the verse is opposed to slumber. Slumber, again, is like dozing off, but sleep here is like deep sleep. It's like the kind of sleep that Adam needed when, he, when God took the rib out of him. You know, it's like the, you know, when you go into surgery, when they put the, the, ga the sleeping gas on you. That's like the deep sleep. God doesn't fall into a deep sleep. Think about how God's people are when they are going on this journey. This journey for some, again, it takes days. That means that they have to find a place to rest, and it's not their home, as they go on a place to worship God. Some of them have to sleep in tents throughout this journey, and as they rest, they are exposed to the elements or threats from wild animals and foreign enemies. And each time they go on this journey, it requires a tremendous amount of faith. You know, at minimum, they'll go on this trip maybe once a year, but some of them might go multiple times a year. And for some of them, they're not even living close by. They take days and uh, they'll take days out of, or weeks out of the year to go on this trip. But that doesn't stop them because they trust in God. They know that the Lord doesn't need sleep or rest. In fact, this word sleep is, is, is used all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 18. This is a familiar text. This is when uh, Elijah goes against all those Baal worshipers, right? In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 27, uh, uh, Elijah does this, he, he, he makes fun of them. He trash talks the Baal worshiper. He tells them, like, call out with your loud voice. For, it, for he is a god. Either he is occupied, meaning he's in the restroom, or gone aside, or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. This is the same word that's used here, that these false gods, these false deities, need to, you need to be their alarm clock. You need to wake them up. But our God does not sleep. He's not snoozing. He's not taking a nap. He does not need any rest. He doesn't need caffeine to keep him up. This means that for us, we are always under God's watchful eye. Day and night, Yahweh stands guard. Life is full of threats, and our God is an alert guardian. He is our keeper. Our keeper, he's our keeper, and no one else can fulfill this role. Verse 5, the, Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. God is vigilant at all times. The word keeper here means to watch over and to 
preserve. This is something that God does. He preserves his people. He watches over those that belong to him. Even though they are going to the temple to worship God, this doesn't mean that God is stuck in this one place. God is not bounded by the temple. And the picture here is that the psalmist wants to convey an image of God leaving a sacred place and going with them on this journey. And for the Jews, they understand that going to God is an act of devotion and worship to God and is an opportunity for them to trust God. It is out of their love for God that drives them to go and pursue to worship God in the holy city. Their, peop their love is obviously not perfect, but they are concerned about getting there because they, they don't care about their life. They care more about worshiping the Lord to show their devotion and love to him. What keeps them at ease is who they look to. They look to the Lord for their comfort and protection. It says here, Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. This is just a metaphor for protection. The psalmists understand that God will protect them. And he expands this picture in verse 6. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. There's a contrast between us being under God's shade and the sun's inability to smite us by day. This picture should be familiar to us if you study the Old Testament, especially in Exodus, there's this, in the Exodus talks about how there's like a pillar of fire by night and a cloud in the day to, to watch over and guide Israel. God watched them day and night. God provided shade for them in the form of a cloud and direction at night and by a form of a pillar of fire. And it's interesting that the difference between the sun and the moon, the sun gives light and the people are able, unable to look at it, but the moon is unable to give light. It is something that you can look at this point here is that God is watching over you day and night, no matter what's going on, whether you can look, whether you have vision or not. God takes care of his people day and night. It is also a reminder for them that God will provide real protection. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Some of you might be thinking, well, in the last several months, some people might have gone to church and maybe have gotten attacked or they've gotten hurt while going to church. We know that that doesn't mean, this passage doesn't mean that you become invincible just because you're going to go and worship the Lord doesn't make you invincible yes that's true but I think the attitude we need to have is similar to that of Daniel and his friends Daniel chapter 3 this is a familiar story to us as when Nebuchadnezzar makes his golden statue and he tells people to bow down to it at a certain time of the day and Daniel's three friends choose not to do it. It says here in verse 16 of chapter 3, in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. So again, they threatened, uh, the, 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 gov the king at the time threatened them, that if you don't bow down to me, I will throw you in this furnace. And these three individuals were bold. They said, okay, we will, we will be protected by God. But verse 18 tells us this. There's a little caveat here. But even if he does not, meaning if they get thrown in the fire and they die, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your God to worship the golden image that you have set up. They have this devotion and zeal to the Lord. They, they understand God can protect them if, he's, if he wants to. But even if he doesn't, it, sh it should be a testimony to you that we trust in our God and not in your false idols. We need to have the same type of zeal, that obedience to the Lord is always better, and even if it means our death, what better way is to go than to die as you go on worship, as you go to worship the Lord at church? 
Churches will be a shadow of the things in heaven. This will be what heaven might look like here on earth. If you die going to church and you skip the shadow, you enter the real thing. You either worship God now imperfectly or you die and you worship God perfectly. Our attitude should be like Daniel or even Paul, for to live is Christ and to die is gain. The only way we will lose, uh, lose in this life is if we fail to be faithful in obedience to the Lord. Verse 7, but Yahweh will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The psalmist sings that God will protect us from all evil. This word protect here is the same word for keeping watch. The theme of this chapter is that God's protection it, it leads to this powerful conclusion. God will protect us. God will guard us. If God can protect you from the things in this life or even the next life, what is there that we need to fear? The only reason why you would be crippled by anxiousness and fear has nothing to do with how great the problem is, really how low and how little you view our God. If God isn't your protector and your keeper, if you don't believe that, then it makes perfect sense why you're worried all of the time. During the, the height of the Cold War, uh, George Bush Sr., he was a vice president to Ronald Reagan, and during that time he visited Moscow three times. Uh, because the, uh, during those, uh, in those three years, actually, the, those three years, three to four years there, um, there's these Russian presidents just kept dying and he just kept going over there to on behalf of the president at the time to just to show them that hey uh, we don't we're sad that your leaders fallen and this is also a way for them to kind of ease attention back then because you know it was a cold war missiles were pointing at each other but when he when George Bush senior returned he made a few observations one he observed that the, the Russians at the time, they, and how, and they, they were unified in how they portrayed themselves. They, they, they portrayed themselves as, uh, as a superpower. And, like, the soldiers were marching in place. In fact, the thing that was uh, pulling the casket was a tank. And this is supposed to be showing the world that, oh, look how powerful we are. And again, on the surface, it seemed like they were a powerful nation. Second observation he, made, he noticed was that after each of these presidents died, the, that they're all elderly people. There weren't any young leaders. And this means that the ideology at the time, communism, uh, was, not, uh, was not being picked up by the young people at that time. And it was only time before the entire nation crumbles, despite the fact that outwardly they seem to be very powerful. But it's his last observation that he noticed that's actually the most important to him. And it's something that we need to consider. When he's in these services, there were these big memorial halls. He noticed that there's no mention of God whatsoever. He looked around and he saw all, everyone just looking at this casket and there was this devoid of hope. They're all alone. There was, no, there, was, there was nothing left for them. They knew that without God, I mean the president, the vice president knew that without God, everything is meaningless. It was a service that was devoid of hope and meaning. And he can't help but notice how lonely these people looked as their president dies and another president dies and another president dies. Some of you live like those Russian back in the Cold War. You live as if God doesn't exist. You don't believe that God exists and therefore you just become dreadful. You're devoid of hope. You have no joy. Life is depressing because, you, because there's nothing at the end. There is nothing for you in this life and then the next. Lacking in a trust of God makes you think that there is nothing on the other side of this life, that this life is all that there is. But we as Christians are not like that. We are not people without hope. 
We are people that worship a living God and that is and will continue to keep us both in this life and the life that is to come. We are not people without hope. If it is God's design for us to live or die, then we li- then and die and live in glory forever. That's great, but we aren't people without hope. Verse 8, the Yahweh will guard your going out and coming in from this time forth and forever. Yahweh will guard us. The psalmist has this assurance of God's protection. And this phrase, going out and coming in, is usually described in the Old Testament as people going out into the field to work. And usually when they go out in the field, there's actually outside of the walls, outside of their home. So there's a, little, there's a sense of vulnerability there. And coming back in means they come back from work. And God protects them as they go out to work and they come back from work. It's supposed to invoke in their mind that God protects at all times. In essence, the psalmist acknowledges that the Lord will protect them in every moment. Theology shapes the way that you think about life. If you understand, if you know, and you believe that God is your keeper, then it should change your outlook in life. This is a passage that talks about God protecting his people as they go and worship God. The principles that we learn here can be applied to us today when we fail to want to gather together as a body of Christ. Do you believe that God is your keeper? And how you answer that question will determine how you think through life, especially now during a time of COVID. I'm aware that in the last year, the pandemic made it hard for us to gather in person. And for the last year, the elders and pastors have been very gracious. Um, we've been trying to be wise in the decision making. Uh, we wanted to protect you guys physically and spiritually as well. Um, so we haven't been really hard and pressing on why you should return. Uh, we've been trying to leave it up to your conscience between you and the Lord. But as you look at the recent health guidelines and vaccines and even Supreme Court decisions, there is a sense in which it is safer now than it was a year ago. So it's a call for all of us to return to church as a church body. I'm also aware that even though things are opening up, some, are, some of you are still struggling with wanting to meet in person. And I hope that this passage will give you assurance in our God to live obediently to him by being with his people. I do also want to say that if you choose between Friday night here meeting in person Friday or Sunday church, choose Sunday. Sunday is where we have communion. That's when the whole body gathers. If you choose between any Bible study or fellowship group, choose Sunday morning because that's where we worship corporately together. At the same time, I know that some of you are here and have come to our in-person service faithfully. I'm thankful for that. Uh, so, but then this doesn't mean that you check out for what I'm about to say. Don't, don't tune me out. My hope is that this message here, just looking through this passage, will give you to equip you so that when people ask or if they're afraid to return that you point them to this passage and show them that our God is our keeper, our God protects us. And also at the same time, this is for you to evaluate your own heart as well. A person can outwardly appear in church but not really internally have a true devotion and love of God. They don't really, you could be here and not really want to worship the Lord. Now I'm gonna list three different categories of people that choose not to return this time. And my hope is to shepherd you, to talk to you specifically. And I think of as, you know, as, as our elder board pastor, as we're talking through different things, I, can, I come up with three different categories of, of reasons why people don't want to return. And my hope, again, is to, to help you think biblically and, and, to, and to hope that you can think through it biblically as well so that you can live biblically. 
Again, this isn't a call to be reckless, but it's a call to evaluate your own heart. I can't judge you or know exactly what's going on in your own heart, but the Lord knows this, and you need to evaluate your own heart and your own heart motives. So you need to answer in your own life this simple question, why don't you want to gather? Why don't you want to return to worship on a Sunday? Here's the first category of people. Those that want to return but can't return due to external circumstances. There are people in the church that want to come back but are unable to because of some sort of external circumstance. These are people that maybe for work reasons, you know, they work in the medical field and, they, and, they, and the medical people ask them, hey, can you not return to church because we need you to be in this front line to, to help people? And in your conscience, you're torn between the two and you decide, okay, I, for the, to be a good testimony, I choose not to return on Sunday um, even though I want to return, but I can't because I want to be good. I want to win people to Christ. I want to help people. If you're in this category, I would encourage you to endure in your circumstances. Again, if your heart desire is to be with the people and you long to be with the people, but you can't because of all these external circumstances, understand that you can still glorify and honor the Lord in it. You know, some of you guys have family members that might are very vulnerable, and I get that. I think our elders and pastors, we get that. We, we understand that you, want, you have maybe non-believing relatives and family that you're taking care of, and you want to be or you, you want to keep ministering to them, and you don't want to be a threat to them. Okay, that, and that's fine. Just continue doing your best to be to, to connect with the church body, though. That doesn't mean that you're that you neglect the church. It just means that you need to find creative ways to have fellowship, whether it's doing Zoom or Meet, uh, or yeah, going Google Meets or whatever. Just find a way to be part of the body. And I, and I draw this principle because when we look at the life of Paul and his ministry, he struggled. There were times where he couldn't meet with people. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, it reads, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Again, Philippians this is when Paul, one of the prison epistles. Paul was in prison. He wanted to be with the Philippian church, but he couldn't because he was in jail. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 to 18. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, we're all, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. See, Paul understood that he wanted to meet them. He wanted to be with the Thessalonica church. He wanted to be with them, but there were some hindrances that kept him from it. And in 2 Timothy this is Paul's last letter. He tells Timothy this, 2 Timothy verse, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Paul wanted to be with Timothy. He longed for that fellowship, but because, again, of the circumstance that he's in, He's unable to do so. Paul missed the church. He longed to be with them, but the situation was outside of his control. You can see Paul's love for God's people and his desire to be with them, but he wasn't able to be there. Yet the Lord is still honored by his love for his people. Again, this could be you. You could be in this first category. You want to be with God's people. You're praying for them even though you're not there. You're doing your best to fellowship, but again, your circumstance around you in, and makes it un, make it very difficult for you and then again if that is you my encouragement to you is to 
to, to endure, to continue to do the best that you can to minister to those around you, to be a light in darkness. And then again, this is a unique time for you. This is a very unique time. Some of you really want to return, but you can't, and that's okay. But you're not saved by works. But the Lord knows your heart. You just need to wait until this unique time passes, and it will pass. Pray that the Lord will remove these real legitimate barriers so that you can be with his people and worship together. As long as you return, as long as you, as long as you continue to serve him in this way, just continue to connect the best way that you can with the technology that we have. Desire to honor the Lord in these difficult circumstances. So that's the first category of people, people that want to return but can't because of external circumstances. But there are those as well that, that can't return or don't want to return due to internal circumstances, due, due to things that are going on inside. Perhaps some of you, you might be vaccinated and you have these, and, and even those external, like your friends and family, they're okay with you going and your job is okay with you. But what is your greatest problem is that you're struggling with fear internally, that you are afraid, you're afraid. You're afraid that what happens if I get caught with COVID? Now, I actually think this is where most of our church is actually at. You aren't sure how to go back to be part of church because you are genuinely afraid of what might happen the moment you join the outdoor service or indoor service. In your circumstance, you really do need to trust God as your keeper. No amount of fear warrants disobedience to the Lord. Again, looking at the New Testament here, Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 tells us this. Or verse, we'll start from verse 6. This is again a familiar passage. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ. Second, Second Timothy chapter 4. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Even though Paul was away, he wasn't anxious. And even if he understood, like, if he was to die, it's okay. Because he knows, again, as I said earlier, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we need to have that mentality that in our life, this is, we're just here for a passing moment. We're here to serve the Lord, and you need to, again, some of you need to trade in your fear for faith. You need to place not your trust in the mask or in your vaccine or even sheltering in your own home, but trust God who will preserve you in this life and the next. You need to remember that this isn't our home. If you have an eternal perspective of your life, then you will need to obey God instead of trying to feel safe all the time. No amount of vaccines mask wearing or anything can truly protect you 100%. I mean, that's what we just talked about downstairs before we came up. I got COVID before and then we're wondering, oh, what if you get the vaccine? Is it going to be worse for you? Uh, yeah, it could be or it may not be. We don't know. My trust isn't in the vaccine. I'm not, I'm not saying don't, be, don't take the vaccine. I'm just saying that like, you need to trust the Lord more than the things of this world. Again, have an eternal perspective. Maybe another way to think about this is that how can you say that you truly trust God with eternity, which is a greater thing, and not trust God with something temporal, which is this life, the smaller thing? How can you trust God with the greater thing, which is eternal life, and not trust God with the smaller thing, and that is this life? Trade in your fears for faith. Ask God to give you grace to obey him, and God will give you the grace to do so. 
he will protect us. And again, anxiousness is a sin. To constantly be anxious means that you don't trust in God. To trade in that fear for faith. So first category, people that don't want to return because of external circumstances. Second category, people who don't want to return because of internal circumstances. And the last category, these are the people that don't want to return regard, regard, even though they have no internal or external situations. This is the kind of person that doesn't want to show up in person, not because they have anything external, like a job situation that's causing them, or even fear internally. They just simply don't want to be with the body of Christ. And it is obvious because, again, I'm, like, I, have inst- I have social media, I'm probably going to lose some followers or whatever, or I might get blocked for this, but it's because I see you on social media. People tell me, hey, you know, a lot of the people in our church are still going out and doing everything, but they're not coming back to church. This is a person that's willing to go and dine and have supper and not be part of church to have the Lord's Supper. If confronted, oftentimes these people make excuses that, oh, it's, the, it's my job or it's in, in internal spheres, but yet you see in their life that they actually don't have that fear. They're the people that are willing to go on vacation, go in a restaurant, have all of these other fun activities except going to church. And I know this because I see the timestamps. I know when you guys are going on these places and restaurants. It's, it's obvious. You're, just, you're not even hiding it anymore. You're blatantly telling the world that you don't care about Christ or the things of the church. And what you are is a hypocrite, and that is sin. Your problem is, is clear that you don't trust. It's not that you don't trust in God being your helper or your keeper, but you're choosing not to obey him. You are in direct violation of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, that tells us that we, we should not forsake the assembly of, of the saints. Now, you may hear this and think that I'm being legalistic, and I'm not. Legalism is working your way into salvation. What I'm actually calling you to do is repentance. Repentance is turning away from a certain lifestyle and living your life according to scripture. I'm not saying that coming out to church make you saved. I am saying that if you are saved, you would want to obey God and his word. Don't get it mixed up. It is a sad thing in our day and age that we confuse faithfulness to legalism. We think faithfulness is legalism. Obedience to the Lord is not a burden. If we love the Lord, 1 John chapter 5. This is what 1 John chapter 5 verse, we'll start from chapter 5 verse 2. By this we know we love the, chil- we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandment. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not a burdensome. Being with Christ's people, being in church to worship him should not be a burden to you. Again, this might get me unfriended on social media, and it really doesn't matter. Just because I see it, the Lord already knows. What I see is just the tip of the iceberg. The Lord already knows what's going on in your heart. And as a pastor, I am confronting this group of people, not because I don't want you to enjoy life, but that you won't be able to enjoy life without the Lord. I'm confronting these people because I am concerned for your spiritual condition. You might think, well, I can't drive. Well, then how did you get to those places that you hang out in? Well, I don't have time. Well, how do you make time for the things that you go do? There is never a good excuse to disobey the Lord. If you're willing to go out and do all of these things outside the church instead of returning to worship God, I can't help but wonder where your heart really is. The difference between the first group where I said it's okay for not to return and the second group is that, the, 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 or this group, the third group is that the, 
third group doesn't have any obstacles. There's nothing hindering you from returning other than yourself and your own sin. You choose not to return out of a lack of reverence to the word of God. There was this Christian rapper that tweeted this recently where he said he loves Jesus but hates the bride. He doesn't want to be with the church. You can't have one without the other. Imagine if someone said that to one of the married couple here. Hey, man, I love you, but I hate your spouse. Like, we're one. If you hate one, you're going to have, you're like, either you repent or you get punched in the face. It's like, there's, there's no way about this. You know, how can you not want to be with the church, the place that the Lord redeemed with his own blood? If you have no desire for the church, then the reality is that you have no desire for Christ. You can't claim to love Christ and not be the bride of Christ or be with Christ's people. If you are in this category, there's really only one response. Turn from your apathy of God and return in worshiping him. Again, I'm not saying that coming to church all automatically makes it go away because it's a heart issue. If your heart is that you don't want to worship well, then you need to repent from the heart. As a pastor, my greatest fear is that the implication is that in your heart, you choose not to be with the body of Christ. Like what the implication is that you never really are saved to begin with. It should give you a sort of warning signal in your conscience that something is not right. Absence from the body sends from an apathy of the soul, which is an outflow of apostasy of the faith. Absence from the body sends from an apathy of the soul, which is an outflow of apostasy of the faith. Perhaps for some of you, the true reason why you don't want to return is that you're never part of the body of Christ to begin with. And if that is you, then it makes sense why you don't want to return. But again, for you, I plead with that you come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that you acknowledge, that you understand that you have lived in sin, you're not perfect, and that Christ died for your sins. You need to understand the gospel, truly go back to the basics. Your first action is not to come back in person, but to be made right with God. And again, some of you might, uh, you, might, uh, you might be a believer, and you're struggling with this, and this is just a wake-up call for you to return. Again, it's not a call to be reckless. This is a call for you to check your own heart. Where are you in these three categories? God is our keeper. As we look at Psalm 121, we can't help but remember and know the fact that God is our keeper. Whether or not you're physically safe, that fear needs to be cast aside because God will watch over us. Even if we lose our life in this life, it is better to live out the life of faithful obedience and devotion to the Lord and lose our life than to comfortably live this life but be in disobedience to him. Because you will give an account to the Lord with your life. You'll give account to the message that you hear tonight. Did you trust God in time where it mattered most or did you depend on something else because of the fears of endangering yourself? If God is truly your keeper, then what do we have to fear? If God is truly your keeper, then what do you have to fear? God is our keeper, then let us return and worship our God together. Let us pray. Lord, we confess to you our own apathy at times, these momentary backsliding moments where we don't love you as we should. But Lord, we understand you're so gracious. You protect us even when we're disobedient to you. 
Lord, we know that nothing in this world is certain except for the things that's revealed in your word. Lord, we, we know that there are people here that are struggling with the pandemic in different ways, and whether there are people that are struggling because of external circumstances, then that is the case that you would just allow those barriers to be removed and they could come back with a clear conscience. And Lord, there are also those we know that don't want to return because of fear, fear of, 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 of the virus, of pain. But Lord, we know that this life is perishing and we want to use every moment that we can to, to honor you, Lord. At the same time, Lord, we know there are those who, who are apathetic and are in fear of apostatizing because they have never truly loved you or their love has waned and the idols of their hearts are really revealing itself. And I pray for these individuals that you'll work in their hearts, that you'll break that hard-heartedness so they can come to repentance. And Lord, for all of us that are here in person and being person, may we be humble knowing that the reason why we're here is not because of our own abilities or bravery, but because of the grace that you've given to us so that we can worship together. But we trust you and we ask you to, to work in heart so that we can continue to trust you more each day. We know that you are a keeper, and we're thankful, even if we don't always acknowledge it. Be with us this week as we seek to honor you with our life. In your son's precious name, amen. All right, some quick announcements in light of what I just preached. Um, so this past week, there's a, I guess the Supreme Court has, has ruled that it's okay for you know, the church to return without any limitations. That, and that does, I'm not making some directive call here, but I do want to say that in the room right now, there, we could fit about 35 people or a little bit more. And right now there's like maybe a quarter of it filled. And if, and if you're able to return, please return. Um, I know there's some health guidelines that we're still trying to follow. Um, and again, I don't want to prick your conscience in the wrong way. I'm not trying to be legalistic, but I do want to at least remind you that we are Christians and we are people that that, that we worship a true living God and, we, it should, and that should be evident in our life. Uh, so yeah, if you guys are able, please return. Uh, we, we'll, we can fellowship a little bit longer now and if you're here, you can, you can actually fellowship here and you're in the garage if you like. I got permission from Albert to do so. So if, you're, uh, if you guys want to stay a little bit longer to gather and to fellowship, that's totally fine. Uh, if you're online, you just, you know, uh, feel free to fellowship as long as you want because there's no restrictions online. Uh, but I do encourage you guys to, to continue to slowly transition back to more of the in-person fellowship. I, I think the last year has taught us the, that, we, that we, we don't really appreciate fellowship till it's gone, right? Like, I think I, I miss all of you, and I, I miss being with all of you. And I know this is a slow transition back in, but, you know, we just, it's, it's okay. We'll, we'll get there eventually. Um, but until then, just, just check your own heart. Ask yourself why you don't want to return. Or, and even if you are here, ask yourself, why are you here? Is it out of a love for the Lord or just social gatherings, which isn't a legitimate reason, but that you love the Lord and that's why you want to be here.